push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Go get that car out of my way. Come on, you ride my bike today. Bike Talking is a podcast at KPFK in Los Angeles and live on Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. So we're trying to be bike coastal here. And to that end, we have representatives from two similar sized cities in two different parts of the world. We have representatives from Glendora, California and Pittsfield, Massachusetts. We hope to talk about similarities and differences, what's going on and what we can learn from each other. So in a little bit, we'll have Ricardo Morales, who's Commissioner of Public Services and Utilities in the city of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. First, we have Stephen Matier, Transportation Manager for the City of Glendora in Los Angeles County. Glendora is 26 miles east of Los Angeles, has a population of about 50,000 in the 2010 census, at least. And Stephen's joined by the Mayor of Glendora, Karen Davis. Hi, Stephen and Karen. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing great. Um, How are you? Good. I'm pretty excited to hear about your new development over there in Glendora. However you want to approach this. Can you tell us about your parklets and what else is going on? Sure. Mayor Davis, do you want to lead off? I'll let you go ahead, Steve. <laughs> and I'll add in commentary on how fabulous you are and these projects are. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so we, the city completed our parklets in our downtown at the end of August, put in seven. They're really cool. They're like a Lego or Erector set pieces. You just kind of bolt them all together and level them out. So we built seven in one week and they've been a great success. I would say restaurants, they noted they were busier with the parklets. And I think that's continued now with the permanent one. I think visually, they've been a really welcome addition to the village. And I think it's been a great partnership overall between the city, our business community, and our residents to really try something new and be creative. It's really helped us kind of overcome some of the hesitancy maybe of trying something new or things like taking away parking, for example. It's been a really great test case in these types of improvements and how they actually help the economic health of the city as well as the community feel that we have. And taking away parking is a constant theme in the bike world, right? We hear that a lot. And I think in some cases, there's some legitimacy to that, right? Obviously, losing a parking spot in front of a restaurant can seem like you're losing the prime real estate. And I think the really nice thing about this is it's shown that people want to go to the restaurant, they'll find a way to get there. They may have to walk a little bit further. And like I said, the proof was in the pudding. Restaurants are still busy. It's not like it's a ghost town with these parklets out there. And it's been great just to see that it's working and that it's really building on and supporting further endeavors to increase the livability as well as the economic health. Yeah. And Mayor Davis, it's so exciting to have a mayor on the show. Is this our first mayor? It could be. Do you want to tell us a little bit? Yes. Well, one of the things I was going to say that in addition to them just helping the restaurants on a daily basis, I think it's encouraged that walkability that we're striving for. I was in the village almost all day yesterday because we had our annual Christmas parade and other events going on. And throughout the day, I saw families walking or the parents pulling the wagon, some folks riding their bike into the village and riding scooters, other modes of transportation. But an advantage that we found yesterday from the parklets that we never would have dreamed of is with the Christmas parade, they became grandstand seating. And there was one nonprofit that actually sold spots on a parklet that you could get food and drinks from one of the restaurants and for $50 have prime seating on the parklet for the parade and they sold out in a day. So we would never would have dreamed that would be another advantage, but I think it's another example that people are thinking more creatively, that they were hesitant to introduce bike lanes, to introduce parklets, but now that they're seeing what that could mean for their lives and different things that they could do, they're actually embracing it and being more creative. So I think it's great. Well, let's bring Ricardo on because it's interesting to think about the contrast between two different types of communities. And Ricardo's the Commissioner of Public Services and Utilities in Pittsfield. Glendora sounds like you may have had some pushback on taking out a parking space, which is just one person's car for an hour at a time. And it's kind of strange to think that people would really hold on to that so tenaciously, but they do, right? And unfortunately, in our community, in our region, we had the electric red car years ago, 
And it was taken out because people fell in love with the automobile and the oil industry and the auto industry pushed automobiles. And so in Southern California, that love affair with cars and having their parking spot, and I'm sure our neighbors to the east have a much different mindset when it comes to that. Southern Californians are a little spoiled. Entitled. That's a good word, entitled, yes. (laughs) I was thinking of Ricardo and his community that they're much better on the East Coast of getting out of their cars. Us on the West Coast, we're very bad about wanting to stay in our cars, even if it means sitting in a parking lot, also known as the freeway. But on the East Coast, they are much better at using public transportation and other modes of transportation. True, Ricardo? Well, while that is certainly true, I'll say a regional basis, each municipality, each location, especially a location like Pittsfield, which for those that don't know, we're in west of Western Massachusetts. And it's a small city, 44,000 residents within a mostly rural area. And we do have challenges when it comes to mass transportation. And listening to Mayor Davis, it just brings to mind a lot of the same themes. Pittsfield, very similarly had an electric light rail system that lasted all of a half a century. So about 50 years from late 1880s to 1932, something like that. So yes, we suffered at that time the same fate with the advent of the automobile and all that. So we are still in some sections of the city digging up for repairs and find rails underneath the pavement. And it's very interesting. We do have very entitled, I will use the same word, entitled residents that think that the only meaningful way of moving is with a motor vehicle. And one of the main things people use is the weather. Up here, we have a little harsher winters than other regions in the country. And it's certainly used as an excuse for not going out on a walk or a bike during during colder temperatures. And that's something we're trying to actively dismantle. As we know, a lot of the bicycling that happens in the city on a weekly basis is commuting year round. We have more than the state's average of household without a vehicle. And that would be good if it wasn't for the fact that our mass transportation system is not as robust. So we're inching our way and working our way to providing better transportation accessible for everyone. Maybe we should talk about some underlying conditions here. Pittsfield's very different from Glendora, although similar populations, right? Around 50,000 each? Yep, just under 44,000. But in Pittsfield, the main employer left the area was GE, and it was a huge employer. Now you have, what what is it, General Dynamics? Well, yeah, that's a good point to mention. We always hear, I'm not from the area, right? I came here about 10 years ago, and since I got here, everything I would hear from people that lived here their whole lives is, it's never going to be the same. And using that as somewhat of an excuse for looking ahead for what we want our future to be in the area. And there's a good community fighting that back, but it's hard, right? And yes, GE had a big operations, 15,000 jobs in Pittsfield since the 50s and 60s. And somewhere around the mid 90s, they basically left about 30 years ago. And the population at the time was close to 60,000. And since then, it's gone down to what we have now, 44. We're very excited to have gotten the census report. And for the first time in 30 years, the decline has really slowed down dramatically. This past decade, with a lot of effort in that mindset, I think has helped with slowing down that decline. And in Glendora, I'm thinking probably kind of affluent right in the foothills there near Pasadena. Yes, the joke is that money rolls uphill. So the foothill communities do have some of that affluence. And I think an advantage that we have over Ricardo's community is the weather, as he mentioned, that we have one season in Southern California that just varies. Today, it's the cool spring season, sunny, bright, but a little chilly, but still you can get on your bicycle and head downtown. So that is an advantage that we have that way. And that people, because of being a little bit more affluent and we're a bedroom community, that people do have those options. They can have their vehicles, but also 
have means to purchase other modes of transportation. It's just trying to encourage them to use those other modes. I should mention that Ricardo, I think it was under you, right? That you just installed all these protected bike lanes. We've been working before my time. There were unbuffered, just conventional bike lane on a couple of streets, not really connecting in any meaningful way in a network. And we've been working hard myself, the city planner, CJ Haas, even before me, he started the planning phase for that. And I joined the city in 2018. And since then, we've been working together, the two departments. I started as a city engineer. And since I started, we began just focusing on increasing our network. And one of the first things, and we just finished that, was creating our bicycle facilities master plan for a comprehensive look at what we need, what we need to add, where we need it, looking at bicycling level of stress and other measures. And yeah, we quickly, because it was so easy, we quickly doubled the amount of bike lanes. And during the last year, we installed in our main street, it's North Street, which passes basically through the old neighborhood. It's an early 1800s downtown with tall buildings, six and eight story buildings, about three quarters of a mile long with its side streets. We installed a double buffered bike lane where a travel lane used to be. So we narrowed down, we implemented a road diet, eliminating that lane in each direction and replacing it with a double buffer. Just because we still have parking on one side, moving vehicles on the other, we wanted to provide that level of buffer. And the reduction of the two lanes to one lane has actually been received well by businesses and other non-business community. The bike lane, it's not as well received, but what else are we going to do with that space? Everyone thinks that it's a good idea to reduce the two lanes to one, but some business members are asking, can we then add diagonal parking, for instance, instead of the parallel parking? Maybe we can do a back-end diagonal parking and still have a bike lane. So we're working some ups and downs, but I think it's going well. So I think some of the wisdom around installing road diets and bike lanes is that a lot of times people like businesses who don't think that you need parking to have business need to be shown what it's like before they'll ever be convinced. So that is kind of the trick, isn't it? But then even when you put in a bike lane and not flooded with bikes and people point to it and say, see, there are reasons for that, that you don't have a connected network of bike lanes and I guess you don't have it connected to transit. Right. So we're working to get that connectivity. The North Street project went ahead of ourselves a little bit because of the state funding funded project. Because of the pandemic, the state issued the Shared Streets grant program. So we took advantage of that. And even before we had finished the master plan, we decided to narrow down to one lane and do something with that, the space we gained, right? The bike lane. With that program, we also installed about nine parklets in the downtown area. That was last year. Since then, we have still about four. So one thing that I kept thinking about is how can we as a municipality, as a city leadership, make the businesses use the stuff we provide as intended. And it's difficult. Some businesses don't want to use it or don't care that there's a new parklet in front of their spot. Some are embracing it and taking it to a whole new level. And it's amazing, but it's a mixed bag. Some may say it's a matter of communicating or meeting with them. We tried all of that, and it's very difficult to get them to use the spaces we have provided. And some use the excuse of the pandemics, like less hours, less staff. We can't clean the tables outside or something like that. So it's I know you get it. It's difficult, but it would be great if every business would use the stuff we provide, the space we provide for placemaking, if it's used as intended. Well, I will show up at any of these places and use the parklet if you want, Ricardo, because I work in the area. Do you have thoughts on that, Stephen or Mayor Davis? I guess the parklets are just an instant success, though, in Glendor. You know, they weren't at first. Back in 2019, I think, we did a one-day demo of a parklet. And the restaurant owner, who was kind enough to let us do the demo in front of the restaurant, said, you know, this was great, but don't do this again. I don't want to lose a single parking space. And you said, okay, you know, that's the last time you're going to see us. And then the pandemic unfortunately happened and our public works crews, they went out pretty quickly and just set up these very temporary looking, but sizable parklets. And I think our business community, especially in the village, they really were open-minded and embraced this opportunity. So I hear what Ricardo is saying about you talk people to death, but if they're just not going to use it, there's just not much you can do. We're fortunate that we have a really engaged bid, a really engaged chamber of commerce and city council. I'll give Mayor Davis credit. 
they took the leap of faith with us, the temporary parklets and then going with the permanent installation. So sometimes you get lucky and sometimes the partnerships really help and they you take advantage of situations like this. You can lead a horse to water, I guess. Can you make a drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we encountered a little bit of that too with our demonstration bike lane. We did a first last mile protected bike lane. I didn't really know what to expect. So I was thinking that, you know, with you know, a bunch of kids home and parents home, people would be maybe just using it to ride a lot. And we got a decent amount of ridership, I think, for the facility only being like two blocks and that half the street was closed on the other end of it. But I think it speaks to the cultural change that needs to happen to go along with it, right? Which is that instead of when you leave to go to work or to go to school, you don't think, oh, let me reach my car keys, right? It's like, I'm going to hop on the bike or I'm going to get my bus pass out for the bus. It's a conscious choice you have to make. And so how do we make that easier for people? I think that's a big question. Give out electric bikes? Actually, I just got one about a month ago because my kid's too heavy to haul around in a bike trailer. I live on kind of a top of a hill, so he gets to ride in the back of the cargo bike that's electric. So I got an electric bike from California. Oh, nice. About a year ago. Yeah. Do you have bike sharing, Glendora? No, we were working with our regional council of governments to look at that. I'm not exactly sure what happened. There is a snag with that. And I, I forgot to mention, too, we have a great relationship with our nonprofits. So Active SGV, I want to give them a shout out, and the San Gabriel Valley Conservation Corps. They're both instrumental in our demo projects and in our permanent parklets. But we're working with Active SGV to be a like demonstration site for electric bikes. I'm not sure the timeline of that, but essentially at the transportation center, an individual or families can come in and they can pretty much rent the bike for a day, test it out. I'm one of those people, I didn't really want to go electric bike route because I kind of felt like it was cheating. But now that I have, I'm like, this has changed my life. It has removed that like, oh, let me get my car keys right now. I'm like, I just want to hop on a bike and go. It's just as easy, if not easier. Electric bikes are unstoppable. Yeah. Constantly is once you do it, that's it. Oh, yeah. Steven walked the talk or ever since he's been in Glendora, I see him everywhere walking, riding his bike. So People see that example, and it's very inspiring to know that he's promoting what he's talking about. But yeah, just trying to encourage our residents to think about that. I think that if we had not had the pandemic when we did, that it may have been a little more difficult to get our businesses to embrace the parklets, but having the temporary ones, they really embraced that because they saw it as a way to expand their business. And so now just working with folks to encourage the use of bicycles and then hopefully some of the bike lanes as we try to expand that more as well. So we mentioned the culture, changing the culture. Thoughts on that? Is there a consensus on how that works? If I figured that out, I think I'd be a millionaire. Yes. (laughs) One thing that was mentioned before about the weather-related differences between the two places. I have a quick anecdote, and it has to do with the culture. And it's basically when we installed the buffered bike lanes on North Street, we installed flexible posts, not only to delineate the space and proclaim the space for bicyclists, but also as a way to teach the non-bicycle riders or people that are not aware or familiar with the type of infrastructure on how to do it without punishing. We're not installing hard things. You can drive over them and whatnot. So one of the things that we have heard from some business owners in the area is that, well, winter's coming, take them away because there's not going to be bicyclists. You got to plow. They're going to be torn away. So we dedicated time and effort, my department, to plan how we're going to deal with snow around the flexible posts. And we did that for the reason that we know people will still use throughout the winter their bikes to get to where they need to go. And we see it right now. We're almost there. I mean, yesterday we had like 50 degree weather, but we've had already several inches of snow falling in the area. We had about a month ago, 10 inches of snow. So it's real. We have to plow, but we are working our way through flexible posts. We're learning. We've never had this. So my guys are learning how to do it and do it properly and correctly. We're not the first community to do this. So it's nothing that's impossible. But then I get letters from business owners saying, well, people are packing up their bikes and not using them. Please get the flexible posts from and from my business. It's hard to tell them. In a sense, it's easy and it shouldn't be hard, but communicating that you need to realize that there's still people that rely on their bicycles to move around, even when it's cold. 
there's still people that have to walk or bike that do not own a vehicle or don't want to get on a bus or can't get on a bus. And that's the message we need to carry through. And yes, I never did it before because I had the luxury of owning a vehicle. But now I'm trying to get out on my bicycle, even on colder temperature and experience it myself. And it's not really bad when you dress for the part. It's okay. So we're approaching it that way. I know you worked with a lot of the big stakeholders in Pittsfield, Ricardo, and did you talk to them about giving incentives to people who come to work on a bike at all? That's been discussed multiple times. The angle we're taking with that is starting with the city staff, and we're looking into how we can combine that with our benefits through the medical insurance. So that's the current approach we're looking into, but it's not something that's settled yet. Like you get a discount on insurance? Not necessarily discounts, but right now, if you do exercise, you get bonus points and you can get gift cards and stuff like that. So why not count active mobility towards that type of incentive? That's what we're looking into. Mayor Davis, we have a colleague here. Her name is Andrea Learned, and she's trying to interview elected officials. And she's done a few. There's a mayor called Mayor Helps. I guess she's... Vancouver. I don't want to get it wrong, but she's trying to get elected officials to be visible while riding a bike. Mm -hmm. And have you considered using your position, your visibility to promote that? Yes, I haven't done it a lot, but my day job is I'm a pastor. So we had a bike to church day in 2019 and 2020. I couldn't get any traction on it, but I hope to do that again. And then also in my role as mayor also. One of the other cultural changes I think in our community is that because our light rail is coming back via the gold line construction, and then also we are doing urban trails, that I think that there's going to be two ways we're going to have to approach that with our people, is show them that the urban trails can link them to the gold line, and then also that it links them to recreational possibilities, not only on those urban trails, but we have 37 hiking trails in our city. And many of those people ride mountain bikes on. And so trying to show them, hey, you can go on the urban trail or one of our bike lanes in the city and get to these other trails so that it's not only getting you around town, but it's another great means of recreation. And so I think culturally trying to teach them that, okay, now you enjoy using your bicycle for recreation. Imagine if you use that for transportation. Wow, what a great thing. So I think there's several different ways that we have to go at it with our community and trying to change that culture and mentality. But I am very much in favor of encouraging folks. And one of the ways that we have thought about it, and I don't know if all my colleagues are on board with this, but in terms of development, using that as an incentive for future development. For instance, we just had a medical facility that is remodeling and expanding. So the traditional give your employees incentive for carpooling, or using other modes of transportation and maybe expanding that whole idea that it's an incentive and development that you can get away with fewer parking spots, but you have to have your employees use other means of transportation. So I think there's several different angles to go at changing that culture and mentality. Maybe you have to start from within the city, like Ricardo said, because there's so many parts to it mm -hmm. that you need the people who are working on it to all be on the same wavelength. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'll add to that too. The state of Glendora, we have what's called our Altcom, which is our alternative commute program. And we have air quality funds that we use, and that's a cash incentive directly to employees who walk, bike, carpool, take transit. It's a pretty expansive incentive program. I got my boss on an electric bike and he rides his bike to work. And we're actually about to do a survey of employees to see how we can restructure the program to grow participation. Because I agree. I mean, I think if we're going to be working on these projects, I mean, we should be the ones that are also using them and taking it seriously for, I guess, like a better term. But I think over the past years, really, as a city, I've tried to put our best foot forward with creating more of a culture of multimodalism. 
And back to Ricardo, in Pittsfield, you have, speaking of the culture, people drive pickup trucks because they need them. They use them and they hunt and they do all these things that I would think in Glendora, you have a big truck just for kicks. But yeah. I suspect that in Pittsfield, there's kind of a bias against people who are on bikes. That's of. true. I will definitely admit that that's true. It comes with the regionality and, and what goes around Pittsfield. Certainly Pittsfield's dense urban core is distinctive from the rest of the county. But then you quickly within Pittsfield and then expanding ever more outside of Pittsfield, you have a shift in the transect of how the land is used. And you go from dense urban to suburban and even rural within Pittsfield. So it's a big polarity on how we have to deal with our everyday services, because the way we do things in a city setting is very different than the way we may approach the same thing in a back road next to a farm. So we have to be ready with that mentality. And then in the greater picture, how that expands ever more with the rest of the county. We did a regional bike share feasibility study with the Regional Planning Commission. And we did it because it was an effort that came from BRPC, but it was very difficult to regionalize a bike share feasibility study or just simply thinking about how we can connect different areas. And simply, it's very difficult unless you have a highway for bicycle. We have that between a couple of municipalities, but outside of that, it's difficult. We have a 12-mile, I'll call it a highway for bicycles called the Ashwaltuka Rail Trail, and we're now expanding it into Pittsfield, finally. So we're working our way to getting it into our downtown. But if you don't have something like that, that type of infrastructure that connects beyond dense urban neighborhoods, it's virtually impossible to expand a bike share system, for instance, or make people ride from different municipalities or centers of towns to Pittsfield, for instance. So it's certainly challenging. Isn't there a very long route that talked about from Pittsfield to where? Right. So that's the rail trail, the Ashwaltuka rail trail. Right now it's 12 miles and we're expanding it two miles into Pittsfield. It ends right at the border with Pittsfield and we're inaugurating the first mile and a half in the spring. It's basically done. We're putting the final touches and waiting for better weather to inaugurate it. And then we're final designing the half mile phase two of it, bringing it further in. And we have plans as we want to get it into the downtown area. We have to move away from the shared use path type of infrastructure and into on the road type of protected bike lane or buffered bike lane within the street to be able to get it into our downtown. So we're working our network to combine the downtown connectivity with the rail trail. On your protected lane, your two miles, didn't you have the cars on the outside as a buffer to start? Okay, so yes, that was through the shared streets program we did on North Street. We initially did it that way. We still did the road diet, but then we pushed out the parked cars away from the curb as a pilot. Then we installed the bike lane in between the curb and parked vehicles, which is very common throughout, but no one in the area knew what that was. And it was met with much skepticism and even hate. People can get very emotional about this. Yeah, I had a couple of students in my seventh grade <laughs> class. They had these arguments against the protected bike lane. What if I'm in labor? <laughs> yeah. What if anything could happen, right? The fact is that we tried it. I'll just say that Pittsfield wasn't ready for it. And we listened to business owners, the community and the officials. And we used another round of state funding to not only change that segment of pilot installation, but also expand the next phase. We did the entire stretch of the downtown main corridor into the double buffered bike lane that I spoke about before. All right. So Mayor Davis and Stephen. You're thinking about this in a pretty comprehensive way. You're talking about your connection to the hills, right? For people to be able to get to the gold line, which is an amazing resource. Gold line goes all the way to LA and that's 26 miles, right? So people can go to LA, they can take their bike on the gold line and go all the way there or anywhere in between. And you're thinking about first mile, last mile and you've got slow streets. So you're doing really well, right? You're not experiencing the same kind of resistance. Well, I think that as we get closer to the Gold Line Station being open in Glendora, because we are such a bedroom community and a lot of people commute to Pasadena, to Los Angeles, that I think that will help a lot to show people they can ride their bike to the Gold Line Station, lock it up there and commute to work or take it with them if they need to travel further once they get to their destination. 
But as Stephen said, when we did do the trial of the bike lane on Glendora Avenue, those flexible hose were the things that people complained about the most. And it wasn't because of plowing for snow, but our residents were like, oh, those are ugly. When are you going to take those down? Are you going to put something prettier? Because that's ugly. And so I think that is one of the challenges for us as we bring protected lanes in is doing some things that maybe get past those initial pushback. Because I think the fewer reasons you give people to complain that sometimes it's a little bit easier to change that culture. Yeah. And to echo Mayor Davis, our experience with the demo bike lane, it was people either loved it or hated it. You know, it was interesting, you know, when we dug into the comments on what people didn't like, most of it was about aesthetics. It wasn't necessarily they disliked the bike lane. It's just, it looked like a construction site. And it, to be fair, it did. I mean, we used temporary tape and linear posts and I was out there with my colleague once a week or more patching it up. What we heard, I think too, is that if we get the aesthetics right, that goes a long way. Glendora has a lot of pride in how it looks. And so we can tap into that and make it look really good. I think we're on the right track. And the other thing that you mentioned, the slow streets, is we closed a part of our street in our village called Mita Avenue. And we're in a design process right now about how to keep that closed and to activate it with placemaking. That was really interesting because when we did our outreach, I did not think people would be so enthusiastic about keeping a street closed. And for better or for worse, I think the pandemic has shown people that it's really great to be outside, especially in Southern California. And people really crave that kind of central gathering space. And this is a great opportunity for us to create that here. Yeah, Ricardo, what happens to parklets in the winter? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So <laughs> we have some, as I mentioned before, some businesses that embrace the parklets and will be using them throughout the winter. And what we did for parklets, we did three types of parklets. The big ones were fabricated platforms that we divided in three and moved them to wherever we put them. Those were two of the parklets. Six of the parklets were built by using modular decking, and they were the favorite. They look nice. The decking looks good. And we will be taking some out. We have taken some out already. And as time goes by, we hear from a business that was trying to use them or wanted to use them, but now they're really not in the mood for it, especially through the winter. And then we tried last year and it really didn't work. We still have them, but we tried putting out pods that would essentially serve to protect you from the weather. They could be heated inside. We bought three of them with the state funds and we moved them to a couple of places. They used them for a while. They really didn't get a good grasp on it. We see other places in the country that have used the same exact pods that we bought and they're using them nicely. And we try to talk with the business owners and get them to spark some ideas on how to incorporate them into their business model. And it really hasn't happened. So that's one of the reasons I mentioned that it's very difficult to get that to bark. It's a difficult question to answer because it's an ongoing challenge and a case by case type of situation. This seems like a good business opportunity for someone to make ready-made parklets because think of all the different businesses with parking that could just slap a parklet in there. How much better is it to have something like that than one space for one car? But there probably isn't a brand of parklet, right? Oh, actually the ones that we put in, they come basically three pieces. So you have a metal frame, a wood deck, and then a railing. They're bolted and screwed together. And we put up seven in a week. There's two firms I know of that have that kind of pre-made parklet. But I agree. I think it's going to be a growth area for sure with this kind of urban furniture. I want to plug the book, The High Cost of Free Parking by <laughs> Professor Shoup at UCLA. Are you all familiar with that? I went to UCLA and I okay. took a couple of classes with Professor Shoup. So yeah, he's near and dear to my heart. I'm jealous right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had him on the show a couple of times, but he's hard to get. You got to book him like six months in advance if he even agrees. Yeah. The Shoup he's a Shoup dog. <laughs> Or the shoopistas. Shoopistas, yeah, exactly. I definitely consider myself a shoopista. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. And in your talk to the Massachusetts Bike Coalition on Monday, Ricardo, you also mentioned a book you were very influenced by called The Green Metropolis. Do you want to say anything about that or anything else about your philosophy? Well, yeah, Green Metropolis by no stretch is up there with the greatest books about our modern way of thinking about transportation and green infrastructure, but it definitely piqued my interest in it a little more than a decade ago. I was about to graduate from my engineering degree, and it just brought to, to my life the whole notion of how we really should think about 
cities as the greenest type of environment we've created as humanity. And if you think about how we consume goods and how our carbon footprint or ecological footprint is measured when we account for density, it's the ecologically friendliest way of living. And so from there, I dove into that world and fast forward to 2021. That's my basis of what I do and my philosophy. It's just what can we do to make it easier for us to have more density, less reliance on motor vehicles. One of the things in that book I still remember is you shouldn't think about how many miles per gallon you get from a vehicle. It's really how many miles you drive that vehicle. So it certainly set the stage for what I do and the way I do things. All right. And as we're heading out, any directions you want us to go in? Mayor Davis, Stephen Mateer, Ricardo? Oh, no, I just wanted to build off of Ricardo. And in my experience with residents, there's this concept called eight to 80 cities. I'm not sure if you're all familiar with that. It's the idea that if a city is safe for an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old, you've succeeded. You've designed a great city. And so being a parent, also with older parents too, it's become very apparent. A lot of our cities aren't geared towards building out a safe and equitable city in that way. And so in terms of a guiding philosophy, I really like Ricardo's about the ecological city. And I also think we got to think about having a city that's accessible for everyone. I think I want to plug the access and equity angle. In right. It. But it isn't in that book at all. But I think that's been a guiding philosophy for me. And I'm sure for Mayor Davis as well, because she's been doing this a lot longer than I have, fighting to make Glendora really great. So Davis, last uh, yeah, I think there are so many things that are so interconnected, as you all know, and in creating an equitable place. And if anything, these tragic storms this week that have shown us the reality of climate change and how tornadoes and terrible storms are coming in December, that reminds us how we need to lessen our carbon footprint and make changes in how we live and use our planet. So I think that looking at anything and everything, another thing that I'm passionate about is public art. And I read about communities where they're doing mural walks to encourage people to walk through the community because they want to enhance and enrich their experience. So I think all of those pieces need to come together to do what Stephen said, make it a great community for an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old and get us out of our cars and outdoors to enjoy the beauty around us and to take better care of our planet so that it will be here for a long time after all of us. Yes, thank you. Thanks all of you, Ricardo Morales, the Commissioner for Utilities and Public Services of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Stephen Mateer, the Transportation Manager for the City of Glendora, and Mayor Karen Davis of Glendora. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Today, we have a Queens-based bike activist who is an expert in all things New York and bikes and congestion pricing. So, Laura, welcome. Nice to meet you, Lindsay. Thanks for coming. And we are so excited to talk about what is happening in New York City because, of course, you guys have such exciting infrastructure happening. So I'd love to actually hear about congestion pricing. What is going on with the thing that will really change so much? Yeah, so congestion pricing has been discussed for decades in New York City, and it's been needed for decades. Right now, we're waiting for it to be implemented, pretty much. It passed the New York State Legislature in Albany about two years ago. It was kind of delayed by the federal government because they wouldn't specify what kind of environmental review was needed for it. And now they've kicked that off with a 16-month timeline, which is pretty ridiculous considering that we know that this will have a positive environmental impact. It will reduce congestion and therefore pollution. It'll speed commutes. It'll raise the money to fund transit. All good things. And so last week, this week, residents of New York City and surrounding counties have been going to public hearings to say their piece. 
I would say it's mostly supporters who really want congestion pricing, who will realize the benefits. A couple of people are coming on and asking for exemptions because a toll doesn't have to be monolithic. Theoretically, anything is programmable. It can vary based on the time of the day, what kind of vehicle is going in and out. For example, a lot of motorcycle riders are coming to these hearings and asking for an exemption. The irony that an environmental review, the most environmental policy there is. Yeah, we never got to have a gigantic environmental review for all of the SUVs on our streets or so many of the things that make life dangerous and difficult for us. Right. Three million free parking spaces. I don't remember being asked for a public comment on that. Not at all. Not in my lifetime. I actually interviewed somebody on Bike Talk who talked about dynamic congestion pricing and also that you would price based on literally if there's traffic. So the middle of the night, it might be free and 8 to 8.30 when you have the price surges like Uber surge pricing. And then a few people wait, they stay home and then it comes back down. And then of course, it'd be progressive. Has any of that been discussed? Um, People have mentioned it, but not really in a nuanced way at these public hearings. Most people are coming with strong views one way or the other, even though it's going to happen. These hearings are to help determine how we implement it, not if we implement it. It would be up to the authorities to make that designation. In New York City, the subway costs the same all the time. It's two seventy-five, no matter what time of day or night it is. But the commuter rails that serve us, the Long Island Railroad, Metro North, have peak and off-peak fares. Yeah, you kind of want people to commute in LA. Our peak travel time is 8 to 8.30 and 50% of those trips are errands or social visits. But then the other 50% can get to work, pricing it a little bit differently. Yeah, I see that too. We'd also like to help people get to work faster. We need to improve transit. We need to run more trains more frequently. We need bus lanes so that bus riders can get to work without getting stuck in traffic. The 14th Street busway in New York City was just the most exciting thing. (laughs) (laughs) They're rolling out a couple of them in neighborhoods around the city. Flushing just got one. Downtown Jamaica's getting busways. And this really, really does speed up commutes for hundreds of thousands of bus riders. But we still have to beat back the predictable opposition from business owners and drivers and the elected officials that listen to the business owners and the drivers. What do you make of progressive leaders quite see their way past giving over all of our streets to cars? Can you clarify that? What are they in the grips of? The placard abuse, giving out way too many placards, resisting bike lanes. Have you guys ever had luck breaking through to a progressive leader and trying to help them see that cars are actually not particularly progressive? Yeah. So in New York City, we have a number of elected officials in the city council and the state legislature who get it. They walk, they bike, they ride the trains themselves. They really do understand this perspective. They've taken the time to listen to the family members of victims of traffic violence. And they've actually worked on legislation to make our streets safer, to install speed cameras, to require the Department of Transportation to expand the bike network with more ambitious mileage targets. We've done bike rides with many of them. We even had our Congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, come on a ride around the Queens portion of the district with us. Wow. How was that? That was wonderful. She knows how to ride. And we really talked about how this ties in with the Green New Deal, how once you have the infrastructure, people have the opportunity to live in a way that's, frankly, affordable, convenient, and good for the environment. And we should be investing in that. Amazing. What would you like to see in New York in terms of your bike network and transit improvements? So we need to continue rapidly expanding the bike network. We still have a lot of really deadly arterial streets. And in a lot of places, they're 
just the fastest or the only conduit that connects neighborhoods. So we really need to see those redesigned and to include safer crossings for pedestrians, protected bike lanes, bus lanes. We need to also just make regular streets safer. Right now, the speed limit throughout New York City is 25 miles per hour. There's a strong 20 is plenty movement, which would just make most streets safer for the average cyclist because the average cyclist goes maybe 10 to 15 miles per hour. If you get hit by a car that's going 20 miles an hour, you have a 10% chance of dying and then it goes up exponentially. So at 40 miles an hour, you have a 90% chance of dying. So it's not twice as much, nine times as much. But in California, you can ticket at one mile an hour over. And so this is talk of saying ticket at 21 miles an hour. It can be a $10 ticket. It's a slap on the wrist. It's just to say, don't do this and really create that culture of we're all in this together and speed kills. Yeah. In New York City, we have speed cameras at maybe about 2000 intersections near schools, and they only operate during the school week when school is in session and they only ticket when drivers go 11 over. So like 36 miles per hour. Which is basically fatal. What's, you know, great, um, but. (laughs) And those are $50 tickets and most drivers get one and then they stop speeding. But we have a real recidivism problem where drivers are just racking them up and they don't care. So we actually got some legislation passed, the Dangerous Vehicle Abatement Program, that would empower the city to impound the vehicles of drivers who rack up 15 speed camera violations within a given amount of time, six months or a year. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, but the city has yet to fully set up this program. And the way it works is there's a restorative justice element to it. After the first five or 10 speed camera violations, they can attend a safe driving course, essentially start over. That's great, but it's not being implemented yet? No, this has really been a problem because... Two weeks ago, a reckless and speeding driver killed a three-month-old baby on a street in Brooklyn. This driver had 91 speed camera violations, and nothing was done about this to get this driver off the road. Oh, my God. Speed is just incredibly deadly. What are you seeing with a bike network that got started a couple years ago under Janet City Con, and it's been hopefully growing, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So recently, one of the most exciting things to happen in New York City is that the city agreed to convert vehicle lanes on the Brooklyn and the Queensboro Bridge to bike or pedestrian use. Currently on the Queensboro Bridge and previously on the Brooklyn Bridge, cyclists and pedestrians had to share narrow, overcrowded spaces. And this was resulting in lots of crashes, lots of injuries, because they were narrow spaces with steep grades and so many different uses all at once. You had pedestrians going at all speeds, stopping to take photos, joggers, people on rollerblades, scooters, bicycles, electric bicycles, all competing for the same narrow space. And so on the Brooklyn Bridge, they converted a vehicle lane into a bike lane and pedestrians start keeping the promenade, which is the iconic tourist destination. And on the Queensboro Bridge, this shared lane is the North Outer Roadway. They're also going to open the South Adder Roadway and give that to pedestrians so that it'll only be cyclists. Very crowded North Adder Roadway right now. Wow. And is there a movement afoot to really start limiting how many cars go back and forth into Manhattan? Well, the main opposition we heard to this plan was that it would increase vehicle congestion. And we just had to say, you have to value our lives and our safety. And you have to give this bike boom we've seen during the pandemic room to grow. Otherwise, the bridges are going to be limiters to the network. So the other positive impacts to this will be that the city will also have to make the connecting routes safer because you just cannot have a gap in the network at a high traffic location. That's just a recipe for disaster. And so we are kind of seeing some of the benefits radiate out as they get ready for that. Wow. You have a new mayor coming in. Eric Adams, any predictions on what you're going to see in terms of bikes and transit in New York? Well, with Eric Adams, I would anticipate strong support for the Greenway Network. 
He's been a supporter of the Brooklyn Greenway Initiative, which is one of the most highly trafficked routes in the city. Most of it's been just a painted lane for about a decade, and it's finally getting upgraded to a sidewalk level path with plantings around it. And it's beautiful. I hope we'll see a lot more of this kind of investment because this is what really makes it possible for people of all ages and abilities to ride. Since Eric Adams won big in the outer boroughs, I hope that greenways throughout the outer boroughs see the same investments that the greenways in Manhattan and along the Brooklyn waterfront have received in the past decade. And as far as on-street projects, I think he will prioritize safety when projects are very clearly needed and have popular support. My main concerns are with regards to police enforcement and placard abuse and some of the things that make a lot of our existing bike network kind of treacherous. We have a lot of painted lanes or lanes that are only protected by flimsy plastic flexi posts that are constantly parked in instead of designing better bike lanes that you can't drive a car or a truck into. These are heavily reliant on enforcement, but the people who are supposed to be doing this enforcement are also abusing the infrastructure. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of Twitter photos, placard abuse. <laughs> like I think that's their Twitter handle daily. It's a lot. It's crazy. Well, Laura, it's been so good to talk to you. Is there anything else that we should know out in LA about the bike scene in New York? Yeah, it's really growing. Throughout the pandemic, so many people bought bikes for transportation and recreation. There are so many kids on bikes here, a lot more women, seniors. People have really embraced e-bikes. They're legal now. And everyone who gets one loves it because you really do get places faster than you would by car and in some cases by transit. Oh, I did want to say with regards to congestion pricing, actually... The hope is that as there are fewer vehicles on the road, in order to prevent speeding on wide, empty streets, we'll reclaim that spatial dividend to build wider sidewalks, protected bike lanes, bus lanes, and other uses of street space. Interesting. So congestion pricing will bring down the number of vehicles in the city. And with that suddenly lanes will free up and you can really reimagine the streets. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because we don't want fewer vehicles to turn them into speedways. Right now, we have a lot of four or five lane congested avenues, honestly, in the central business district of Manhattan. And these are really wide crossing distances for pedestrians. A lot of drivers block the crosswalks, even run through red lights. And we would want to rein that in. Yeah, building out the things that keep people safe and improve the quality of life. We want more space for outdoor dining, for street vendors, for cultural performances, all the things that make life in the city exciting and vibrant. It sounds magical. We wish you luck. We're very jealous. And thank you again for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you for having me.